Welcome back to the Growth Innovators Podcast. Terry Jones is one of the more accomplished executives that I've encountered when it comes to repeatedly upending the status quo. He began with American Airlines and rose to the rank of CIO. From there, became the CEO of Travelocity and later the founding chairman of Kayak. He now serves on many boards, invests, and advises firms and governments around the world on how to compete in a digital age. In this episode, advisory partner John Sfiokla chats with Terry on how leaders can think about competing in a hybrid world of digital and physical. Super important, obviously, as COVID has accelerated the digital transformation of all firms. And if you want to have a sense for what we think the new normal will look like in travel and other industries, I think it's a great episode. And with that, let's go to John and Terry. Hey, welcome everybody. This is John Sviokla and welcome to the Disruptors Playbook as part of our Growth Innovators Speaker Series. This is number three. I'm delighted to be talking to you from Chicago with my friend and acquaintance, Terry Jones. We're going to get into the agenda for today. Terry really was a leader who transformed an industry. We're going to talk a little bit about the future of travel. He's going to help us with this notion of risk, agility, and decision-making. And we've been kicking around what we think of the new business models. And then I'll hit you with the rest of the story, which is a little story about Disney and company. So that's our agenda. I've got a chance to know Terry over the years, and I've known of him forever. When I was teaching back at Harvard Business School, the anchor story we told about how technology makes a difference in business was about the Sabre system at American Airlines, and then the follow-ons with things like Travelocity and Kayak. So as we're trying to tell the world, this is back in the 80s and the 90s, about how technology was going to change competition. And Terry, more than any person on the planet, is was right in the middle of that. He was working for Bob Crandall at the, at the time, uh, who was the CEO of American Airlines, and was the chief information officer. And then he became the first CEO of Travelocity. And you have to remember at the time, and Terry will tell you some about this, that at the time he became CEO of Travelocity, over 90% of the bookings were done through travel agents, and Travelocity was a direct competitor to travel agents. So talk about executive courage and disruption. Unbelievable. He's on 17 boards. He founded two of and had successful exits on Travelocity and also Kayak, and we'll go into the evolving business model there. He's an unbelievable thinker, venture capitalist, speaker, and so forth, and his two books on innovation and disruption off, I highly, highly recommend. I particularly like disruption off. We'll be talking a lot about some of the findings in there, but I think they're must reads for every single company. And I can't be more delighted because what we're talking about in terms of the computability of reality and what that does to businesses and what it does to business models, you can argue that travel more than any other industry, or at least as much as any industry, has gone through that transformation. And Terry has been in the furnace of making that happen, both from a large company transformation standpoint, what that means, and also from the startup end. So, Terry, welcome. I'm delighted to have you here. John, it's great to be on with you. Thanks for having me. Pleasure. So first, just quick thing about Manifold, who we are. We're a venture holding company. We really try to figure out disruption from the point of view of the startups, from the point of view of large corporations, and we build stuff. So that's really advisory ventures and studios. And then sometimes we also act as a matchmaker, as Terry mentioned, basically match.com for disruption between the startups and the large companies. So fun stuff, great work. Let me return to what I think is a critical theme throughout a growth innovator series. There's a fundamental phenomenon that began in 1938 with a church Turing hypothesis where Alan, Alan Turing and Alonzo Church separately, simultaneously, came up with the idea that you could have a symbolic description of reality that allows you to run that reality, recipes that can run themselves. If you believe in an expanding universe, that digital universe or that symbolic universe was born then and has been exploding and, and eating the rest of the world since. How do you know if it matters to you? I would navigate with this. The general argument here is the law of computability. So the level of knowledge of the task to be done, and think of levels of knowledge from categorization to correlation to causation. I can name it. I can see what goes together. I can understand what causes what. Times digitization equals computability. And as I've mentioned before, a good simple example is the self-driving car. Before Google put the LiDAR on top of the self-driving car, the car's driving environment was not computable. The car was largely computable. As soon as they put that laser rangefinder on top, they could build a digital reality that the car drives through, fundamentally changed and gave us a self-driving car. That phenomenon is happening everywhere around you, whether it's Facebook, 
computing your the social cognition of what you're going to buy next, or as we'll talk about with Terry, some of the things that the travel providers are doing in terms of matching supply to demand and understanding, and really owning the edge, as we're going to get to, is a vital thing. So I just wanted to repeat that. I think this is a fundamental phenomenon, and it's our North Star in understanding where disruption might happen and what it might mean for you and your model. In reading Terry's book, one of the things that blew my mind, well, there's lots of things. He had some of the best quotes. You know how most of the quotes are pretty hackneyed and all that stuff, think outside the box and everything. Terry actually had great quotes and great insight. And one of the things that has just stuck with me since I read it is this idea that every day people wake up with yesterday's thinking. And Henry Ford just looked around and he saw that and he saw that as an opportunity. I just thought that was amazing. And so what really makes it real for me is this notion of what that means for different models and business models. And so I wanted to start here. And let me just say one more thing about Terry's book and let Terry in here because he's going to give you a lot more insight than I am. In reading his book, he's gone through a number of different technologies and implications of disruption. The second book was basically to create the burning platform. The first book on innovation was about giving you advice on how to build distinctive products and services in the context of digital reality. And then he said, well, I'm going around and I need a burning platform. I need to make sure that people understand, look, this is happening now and you have to do something. So in Disruption Off, he does a lot of things. And one of the key things is he puts together three things in a super important way. One is own the edge. That is what's happening with demand, what's happening with your customer and their experience and so forth. Two is other people's stuff. And it's other people's money, other people's assets, and other people's information. And three is subscription. And I believe that those three things together, that tripod is so powerful and so dangerous if you're competing against it, because when that new ecosystem comes together, it's unbelievable. So let me give that as a backdrop. And Terry, please hop in. Feel free to comment, disagree, argue, elucidate. No, I think it's a great distillation. And the chart you have here really is illustrative of that. Travelocity was a full-service travel agent. And really, the only difference between us and the travel agents we were competing with is we were self-service. But we had 2,000 people in customer service. We had to pay the airlines. We had to issue itineraries, bill and collect. All those functions were part of our business model. And then when we went to Kayak, which occurred after Travelocity, and I was, we were looking for things to do and looking at new business models, we said, well, why isn't there vertical search? We can find clients, search for products, and send the customer to the airline. We only have to do three things, and we have no assets. And Kayak went public with 200 people. So you didn't need as many people to create that value. In the end, all we did was search for products because find clients was Google. We didn't issue tickets. We sent the customer to the airline. So it's kind of that one box (laughs) is all we did. Using other people's assets, adding value by focusing on the customer, what they wanted, which was comparison. But they really wanted to book direct, many of them. But some of them wanted to use a travel agent. Fine. We created that marketplace. The part of that story that's in there is in the beginning, the airline said, this is an awesome idea because your conversion rates are so high. Because, of course, unlike Google, we didn't take them to the first page of American Airlines. We took them to the last page. And all you had to do was put in your name and buy. Mm -hmm. But then they said, it's a great idea, but we don't want to pay you because they didn't want any more intermediaries. So luckily, we were venture funded and we ran the company for a year. Only a couple airlines paid us. And then one day we just started selectively turning off airlines that weren't paying us. And they called us and they said, well, where did your traffic go? And we said, same place your money did, dude, nowhere. And they said, please, please turn it back on. So maybe we invented ransomware. But there's a great quote that kind of says, the game is over if the startup gets the distribution before the incumbent gets the innovation. And we got the distribution. Yeah. And the incumbent didn't see what was going on. And suddenly they had to pay us because the customers were coming to us instead of to them. So, Terry, could you tell a little bit about the, the difference in terms of travel uh, Travelocity, you're spinning out of the leading airline or one of the leading airlines, if not the, the biggest airline mm-hmm. at the time, certainly the leader in electronic reservation with Sabre. One is an incumbent really trying to reinvent itself, and then Kayak is an attacker. 
Yeah, well, Travelocity was tough. The Sabre division of American was a multi-billion dollar division whose job was to automate travel agents. And we're very successful at that. And along came the web and we said, could we have a product on the web? And initially that product referred tickets to travel agents, Mm -hmm. but the travel agents really weren't picking up on it. They didn't understand it. And so we started to become a pretty big competitor. And pretty soon the agents woke up and said, you better shut that thing down, American. You're selling bullets to the enemy. And Bob Crandall, to his credit, said, somebody's going to do it. It ought to be us. He supported us. And we grew up to be quite large and they spun us out and we went public. Eventually they took it back. But my whole first book is about entrepreneurship and how hard it is and what are the issues in doing that. At Kayak, very different. Venture-backed. We got two great guys to be CEO and CTO, build a very thin model, real fast. And the tools had evolved so much. At Travelocity, we were using stone tools. With Kayak, the web had evolved. So we could get our customers from Google. We could build scrapers to get inventory. We could move very quickly. We built a mobile product that now has 60 million users because it was fast and flexible. So it was all about speed, but it had a totally new model. It was a click model and an advertising model. So the Mm. revenue was different as well. And we really did own the edge, particularly in mobile. When we brought out our mobile product, we thought it was early in the mobile days. It's about next flight out. It's about a hotel for tonight. It's about urgency. Mm -hmm. It turned out we were dead wrong. If we hadn't listened to our customers, we wouldn't have changed. But it turned out that they used it just like the desktop. It was another platform. But early in mobile, we didn't know that. But it's a platform in your pocket. And so by owning that edge, we get 60 million customers and build immense volume. And we're just this tiny, thin layer between the customer and the supplier who can charge a few pennies and get sold for a billion eight. Amazing. And I know in your, in your second book, you talk about the cloud as having three really important notions. And you also talk about the mobile revolution. So in terms of owning the edge, that you know, platform. One is learning, the other is speed, and then there's no capital. So did that really play in as you're thinking about Kayak? Oh, yeah. Because, look, we had 200 people, so we're using the cloud for IT, and we're constantly connected, so we're we're continuously learning. And it gives you the speed to change. And I think so many customers are waking up now with connected products, so John Mm -hmm. Deere doesn't have to wait for the annual meeting to ask the dealer What are farmers doing with tractors these days? They know every minute and they can update the tractor. I mean, why does Tesla have such unflagging customer loyalty where their quality isn't really so great? Because I I have it because I get a new car every month. They're constantly bringing me new stuff. They can refresh it. And that's part of cloud connection. And the learning, particularly when you couple it with AI, is so powerful. AIs are learning. 24 by 7 by 365. And if your company doesn't have an AI back end, you're not going to school. And yeah. a competitor who doesn't have that, you'll never catch up with a guy who does. Yeah, it's interesting. In the AI part of the book, you talk about four important things. One is the ability to organize unstructured data. So not just the stuff that sits in a database somewhere, structured, third normal form, the whole routine. Second is this new kind of learning, which you're just speaking to. The third was that they actually give advice, and I would even say take action. And there's this notion that a friend of mine and I talked about cognitive reapportionment. Sometimes think the machine is thinking, sometimes you are, sometimes it's a conversation, right? Kind of where cognition happens can move around. Then the fourth thing was this notion of speaking and hearing in natural language and also seeing, right? So adding senses of speech and sight and so forth. I mean, did well, that play a role? And in- It didn't play a role at Kayak. You know, my last company was Wayblazer, mm-hmm. which was using artificial intelligence for travel. And the idea there was travel interfaces haven't changed since Travelocity in 1996. These little boxes mm-hmm. that say from to eight. Well, mm-hmm. that isn't what you're thinking. You think, I want to go to the Caribbean in January with my family, and I want to play golf, and my wife wants a spa, and the kids want something to do. Where should I go? Well, Mm -hmm. we use natural language to allow you to ask that question. And on the flip side, because we'd use machine learning to categorize all the world's reviews and all the images, Mm -hmm. when you got to the hotel site, it showed you a picture of the golf course first. And the review was about the spa. Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. So if you can understand the intent more deeply, you can give such a more profound answer using AI. And that was five years ago. Now the tools are open source to do that. But I can think back years ago in e-commerce, you'd go to a site like Land's End and you say, I want a men's blue shirt, XL button down. And you'd get a 404 page that said, we don't have that. Instead of really trying to understand at least the word shirt, you know, and putting shirts up. Now we can do so much more for the customer and we can do it on the fly by understanding all the sensing data that we get from your mobile phone and from your use of the web so that when you show up, we have the right product at the right moment, relatively low cost. Yeah, I mean, it's amazing. I think it's it's part of this overall thing that you and I were talking about as we're prepping for this thing that my my friend Ellen Levy from Silicon Valley Connect, she talks about in the, the in her mind, one of the fundamental differences between today's world and the, the industrial world of the past is the industrial world of the past, the fixed thing was supply. And the people went to the supply. So I go to the auto store. I go to the department store. I go to whatever. And I shop. And she's saying, forget that. Now the fixed thing is the customer. And everything organizes around that customer. It, it, it's so critical. You think the old world, I built something and then I had this, this company who figured out, oh, okay, I'm going to build it. I'm going to market it. I'm going to send it to a distributor and then to a retailer and the customer is going to come there. Mm-hmm. Now you organize all around the customer. It's all the knowledge I have about that customer that allows me to determine what to sell and much of it can be direct, some of it might be indirect, but the customers in the center. I mean, the great example is Ant Financial you know, spinning out of, of Alibaba as basically PayPal. Mm-hmm. And then saying, well, we have data on these hundreds of millions of customers. Let's not just do payments, let's do insurance, let's do investments, let's do loans. Uh, 20 different businesses all around the customer insight. And mm-hmm. that takes a new organizational structure in the company and yes. radically different organization of your data. Yeah, that's the that's the amazing thing is that the so many of the data systems, process systems, ownership, definitions and so forth were built around the optimization of that industrial model which was people come to supply. And they're yeah. all getting reinterpreted, sometimes not rebuilt. It's interesting Terry too that when you say about and financial, I mean I think that's an example of what I mean about a computable customer. Like you're computing, I mean, when you think about underwriting, it's essentially computing your risk profile, right? And computing your behavior. I mean, that's what underwriters do. So now we're starting yeah. to get the ability to compute your cognition, compute your behavior, compute your risk, compute your family's risk. Some of this is scary as can be, but I mean, the, the fact is that that mathematical description of you, and you note this in your book as well, when people ask me, what should my kids do? I say math times anything, math times music, yeah. math times medicine, math times you know, what language should they take? It isn't Spanish. It's Python, right? Right. <laughs> I mean, right. Exactly. Yeah. It's Python yeah. And, and, and statistics. I mean, I think, you know, matrix math and so forth are front well, and center. The other thing about, you mentioned underwriters. I mean, underwriters for years have worked on actuarial tables. The yeah. change now in car insurance, for example, is moving to actual data about your car. Right. So we have an actual table, actuarial table of one. And at Tesla, what are they doing? They're moving into car insurance. For two reasons. They have actual data on what you do. And mm-hmm. two, they know exactly what it costs to fix a Tesla. Yes. And and they're getting data that helps make that cheaper when they find out what breaks. So they're gonna they're gonna upend the car insurance model, guaranteed. Because yeah. they're wired in real time in the cloud, learning how to do better insurance at lower cost and how to build better cars that that don't cost so much to repair. That's yeah. a wholly new model. Yeah, you know, it's interesting, Terry, the another thing we've explored on some of the other growth innovators thing is as reality becomes more computable, if you have a syntax and semantics for trading, so I can say, okay, this many cars or this, whatever, you then can access capital markets in a totally different way, right? And mm-hmm. and we know from mature information, if you think of like food commodities, corn, pork bellies, and so forth, and as, and the futures markets as mature computable markets, okay, for a minute. And you say, okay, what well, I have descriptions, I have this grade of oil, I have this location, this time, all that, and I have contracts that can reflect that. The phenomenon that you, you, we observe is that the derivatives market, the trading market, 
is orders of magnitude greater than the underlying. And I think it's true that every day, more than a full corn crop of the United States is traded in the corn futures market. And so you think of it and you say, okay, well, yeah, there's Tesla, but then there's the trading company that sits on top of Tesla that trades that risk or trades the parts or trades whatever, right? Because as long as I can isomorphically go from the thing to a contract, to that contract then interacting with some of the market, right? I get I get all this. Well, the data about the thing is worth more than the thing, right? So, so that was sort of the fundamental insight that, that you right. guys had at Harvard when you wrote about American Airlines and Sabre, that Absolutely. the data about the airline was worth more than flying the planes. And Sabre for a time, was worth more than the airline. And, and that just right. continues to move on where, and it's particularly the data about the customer becomes so valuable. And, right. and that becomes the commodity that you trade. I own the customer, quote, and, and therefore I'm in between all the people who want to get to them. And that's, yes. that's what Amazon is. Yeah, yeah. And to that point, let's go to the next thing, which is Amazon, this is from your book also. And by the way, you can get innovation on and disruption off at Amazon.com. I recommend it. Paperback and uh, Kindle and audiobook narrated by me. Um, But it's the same model here where where they had an online model like Travelocity, buy book, store book, set the price, sell book, finance the inventory. And Jeff tried to copy eBay for a while and go into stores and auctions, and that didn't work. And, mm-hmm. and, you know, the story goes, he said, well, let's sell used books. And everybody said, well, nobody sells used and new together. And he said, yeah, but look at this new model. We only have to do these four things. We no longer right. have inventory, shipping, and storage. We just right. market the book, find the client, sell the book, bill and collect. Yeah. And, you know, FBA, fulfillment by Amazon is something like half their business now. We're storing other people's products because they got the distribution. They right. got the customer and then they added prime, which, you know, is like a ankle bracelet for the customer. <laughs> Customers yeah. go nowhere. And it's just a simple model. So Airbnb comes along and says, well, we're not going to own hotels and buy hotels and train people and do all that stuff. Right. We're just going to provide access to lodging. And it really stunned their competitors. And then they did something even more interesting, which the competitors still don't get. Hoteliers think you want to go to their hotel. Mm-hmm. No, you have to go to their hotel because I've got a business trip or I want to go skiing or whatever. I have to. Go. So I'll pick one. I don't really want to go unless it's, you know, some beautiful resort. And and so Airbnb started offering experiences. What do you want to do when you're here? Let us get all these guides and all these people to take you around. So you go to the fabulous restaurant. You see the most unusual site. You do all this stuff. Mm-hmm. And again, caught the hotel industry flat-footed. Marriott's finally added experiences. But they they thought of the guest as a product who was just, I'm going to, you know, the heads and bets, rather than why are they here? What do they want to do? How can I help them? And and I've told them it gets even worse when you do automated check-in. You know, I walk in with my phone. I go directly to my room. It opens the door. And and then I leave. I I never see anybody. Well, who's going to go to your restaurant? Who's going to use anything in your hotel unless you don't deepen that digital relationship with that customer? Mm-hmm. through the edge, which is their phone, which you're using to reduce cost, you better use it also to increase engagement and say, hey, we got a special mm-hmm. in the restaurant tonight. Or did you know we have the world's greatest spa and it's on sale? And before you go to work, you can you know, have a massage or swim. They're yeah. slowly trying to understand that because they've been focused on the, the cost side or treat, treating all customers the same rather yes. than how am I going to engage them and extract more money from their pocket? Yes. Early in my career, I was a professor at Harvard Business School. And I used to teach marketing along with management information systems. And Malcolm McNair, uh, he had passed away at the time. He was a legendary professor of marketing at Harvard Business School. And he said, remember, ladies and gentlemen, nobody buys drills. They buy holes, right? Yeah. And that, I think, has been said so many ways since, right? That's a great example. I, I have that quote, in, <laughs> I think, in my first book because it's such a wonderful quote. I was talking to somebody who, who wants to build a rental tool business to compete with Depot and those guys to rent tools. And what's interesting is that when you go to Home Depot and you go to rent something, they mm-hmm. don't ask, why do, why do you want this hole digger? Which mm-hmm. they should ask. Because if you say, well, I'm building a fence. They say, oh, we got a special on fences. If you buy the fence, we'll give you the hole digger. Right. Mm-hmm. But they 
So they kind of got the first part, which is, well, people need tools to build the stuff we have, but they haven't combined them together around, I want a hole. Well, why oh. do you want a hole? Right. <laughs> you know, Absolutely. Yeah, it's, I can yeah. sell you all the things you're going to put in. Exactly. Yeah. And there's so many places. One thing I want to do, and we'll get to some of the questions, this matrix that you have here, Terry, reminds me of something I learned when I was doing some work for Motorola many, many years ago. And as you may know, Motorola, it was really the leader. They would often create businesses to use their technology in those, and then exit those businesses. And I think folks like Bezos, when he's building Amazon, that he was willing to make certain investments that would give him an advantage to get access to a new model and new information, even if it wasn't optimized around that activity. So you look here and you say, okay, goes into use books for the information about it. And that allows him to be less shipping intensive. And Motorola used to set up companies to use their cellular technology. And then they would sell those companies. They didn't want to be in the phone business. They wanted to be in the hardware business, but they would actually enter certain markets and certain assets and certain business models simply to drive something else in their business. Create demand. I mean, why did he build the Kindle? You know, yes. he built the Kindle not to make money in hardware, right? Because he created the whole digital book industry and right. could sell billions of bytes of books by doing that and tried to do that with a phone. And, and why are they selling Echoes? They can't make any money selling an Echo. You know, they sell it at $29. Mm -hmm. It's connectivity. It's because now my Echo, it pipes up and say, hey, you know, it's time to reorder that stuff. You need more dog food. You need yeah. more of this. You need more of that. Did you know that? Well, did you know we're having a sale today on this? I mean, sometimes it gets irritating, but I get it. it. You know, I use it to control my house and do all kinds of other things. But in the end, it's a piece of the edge. I am Absolutely. close to the consumer. I talk to them with voice and he can buy more stuff and I'll start making suggestions on people that put passwords on because their kids figure it out and suddenly they have a hundred boxes at the front door <laughs> because it's so easy. Yeah. And and there's certainly going to be issues around privacy and so forth. I found out at Travelocity, I did something and people really didn't like it in my company, but we had so many people searching and weren't buying. I mean, travel sites convert about 6% of arrivals into sales. Then I yeah. said, okay, if you come three times and you haven't bought anything, you have to become a member. But if you become a member, yeah. we'll give you a newsletter. We'll send you low prices. We'll do all this stuff. And my, my team yeah. didn't like it. We got 40 million names by doing that. And with those 40 million people, we tracked everything they searched for. And then if John had searched from Boston, LA three times, I'd send you an email, say the price dropped. Sure. So is is so important that people will give up their privacy if you give them something useful. I hear you, Terry. On voice, I think it's a little different. Let me tell you why. There's a woman, Rita Singh, Professor Singh out of CMU. And I was at an event where he had her present. And she took a 30-second voice sample, him read something. And from that voice sample, she was able to map the room that I was in, get a physical profile of my face, guess my age within two years, guess my blood pressure within five points, guess my weight within five pounds, give a personality profile, and also said there was something wrong with my skeleton and I had a knee replacement five years ago. That's available to Amazon. Yeah. I did not consent for that. Now they're getting into my health, my personality. I think Tim Cook's going to win that battle because yeah. they're really tripling down on, on, yes, we know this stuff about your health, but here's the right. privacy that, that we're providing. I mean, my brother, uh, he's five years older than me, just had a heart attack. He's fine, thank God. But he just bought an Apple Watch so he can get an EKG anytime he wants. But Apple is trusted to store that under HIPAA guidelines. Yes. Amazon has made no such statement. No. Well, the, people don't realize they're disclosing health information by talking to Alexa. Yeah. And I'm not, I don't know if they use Rita's algorithms, but all, they, all they'd have to do is give her the recordings and they could do it. Anyway. Fascinating. One of the questions here, Terry, is how do you believe digital nomad economy will shape the travel economy in the next five years? I mean, I guess meaning it's so portable and we're all wired all the time. We're never offline. I think that the pieces of the travel journey haven't been knit together. And I was on a big travel forum two days ago where people are saying coming out of COVID, you know, if I have to move from place to place and be tested and check that I've been vaccinated and all that stuff, what a hassle to have five digital health passports, for example, 
I need one. And I've been spending a lot of my time on digital health passports. I think it's critical for large meetings and, and international mm-hmm. travel. The, the, there's no journey. You know, nobody's really done the journey thing that, mm-hmm. that I call my, my Uber shows up because I booked with American Airlines for this flight and my bags get to the right place and the hotel knows I'm coming and mm-hmm. Uber is there and the bathtub is hot or whatever it is. There's no journey. It's all these disparate parts, particularly because people book at 12 different sites as well. Now, mm-hmm. And they, they spend their time, you know, digitally collecting their trip. So I, I think we're seeing companies f- try to focus travel around how do we do a better job all the way through? And that's going to take partnerships that don't, don't exist today and handing data off from one player to another and protecting the data as we do it. But again, you know, as a consumer, most consumers will say, I'd rather have a great journey. So I'm going to let the data flow between these entities because it makes my life easier. Look, mm-hmm. vinyl records are better than MP3, mm-hmm. but MP3s are portable, right? Mm-hmm. And people made the trade-off because they get music all the time. And it's an old example, but it's a good one. People sure. will trade data for convenience. And I think that's what's going to happen in travel. Fascinating. You know, one of the questions was, say your Travelocity and Kaya comes along, what do you do now that you see that, hey, look, you know, I've got a competitor that's just stripping it off was- an even more efficient piece? Mm-hmm. It, it was very tough. And and in the end, you know, a price line simply bought it, right? And say, we're going to spend $2 billion and we'll make it part of our service. There's still people who want full service, but mm-hmm. they ended up, you know, being a fast follower and acquiring it. At Travelocity, we talked about this idea of search for travel early on. We kind of got the kayak idea and we said, how do we reinvent ourselves, fire 90% of our people, totally change our business model? when we're public. We can. Mm-hmm. Public mm-hmm. markets won't accept that. Analysts won't accept that. Your shareholder base will turn over 100%. You can't do it. So Priceline did the right thing. They acquired it. And, mm-hmm. and as you and I discussed, now there's another company, two of them actually, one called Sojourn, mm-hmm. which actually gets data from the airlines. Let's say you're searching Chicago, Orlando, Chicago, Oahu. Suddenly you start okay. seeing ads for that. But because they know your dates, they can have a travel ad because prices change, right? When you mm-hmm. click on that, they immediately you start seeing ads for the Hilton Oahu because you bought Oahu. And then you start seeing ads for a rental car in Oahu and for activities in Oahu. So now mm-hmm. the ad has moved from vertical search to an ad. It got even closer to the edge. So now the travel company is looking up there and saying, well, how do we compete with that? You got to own the edge yourself. If you let somebody take the edge from you, then they've caught the distribution and you don't have the innovation. So you've, you've got to keep pushing out. I mean, my, my brother printer sells me ink, right? Mm-hmm. It tells me, and, and Amazon just orders the ink. My Brita orders its own filters. You know, lock it in at the edge so that I don't go to Office Depot. You sell to me direct. You know, my, my John Deere tractor says, looks like you need another oil filter. Let us send you one. Right? Sure. And, and that is the edge device making those decisions. And of course, yeah. the other part of that we brought up earlier is subscriptions, right? Yes. And, you know, that's another lock-in model. Yeah. You know, it's interesting. We did some work for Climate Corporation. You mentioned John Deere. And in agriculture, as you probably know, there's a huge battle going on right now as to who's going to own that field-level data, right? John Deere would like to own it. Some of the cooperatives like Land O'Lakes, multi-billion dollar cooperative would want to own it. The Climate Corp folks use a lot of satellite data. It's amazing. They had a, a model where they they insure your field down to a 100 square meter, and if their information stack, if their information stack was insufficient, they wouldn't insure that 100 square meter, but they might insure, you know, the rest of your thing. And they use satellite information in their model. They have no claims agents. They pay you based on whether or not the model said you had a loss. Oh yeah. Isn't that well, and, yeah, and, my, and certain companies are going to that where you just send in a photograph sure. of the car, and that's it. When I got my Tesla, I actually wasn't up here in Tahoe where I live. I was at another place, and I bought my Tesla, and they said, what's your used car? And I just gave them the make and model. They never saw it. They mm-hmm. said, yeah, well, we know, as long as it, you, you're you telling me it's not damaged, we know enough. We'll just take right. your car. We don't have to see it. Done. That's great. 
Right. And soon you'll just say it'll drive itself back. And to your point, Monsanto bought Climate Corp to try to own the edge. Exactly. And that's really not just recreating the past, it's reinventing the future. So when drones came out, people looked at drones and said, well, let's build a drone crop duster. And now 80% of the crops in Japan are, are dusted with drone helicopters. But then somebody said, well, wait a minute, we're already up here. So why don't we put on thermal imaging so that we can tell the farmer where he needs more water and where he needs more fertilizer and then sell him the fertilizer. And you start saying, what can I do now that I'm already here? And how can I add? So when we think about 3D printing and you know drones and IoT and AI, it's the combination of those technologies that right. gets you the power, particularly when added to you know, your 150-year-old idea of a tractor. Absolutely. That's a perfect segue to where we're headed next. So why don't you go ahead in terms of what folks are looking at here? You're looking at a seat bracket prototype from GM, and they yeah. basically took a part and they re- redeveloped that part. They built a thousand prototypes, I think, using AI, and they built this with a 3D printer. And you say, well, that looks like a Klingon warship. You know, what's the point? It is 40% stronger and 20% lighter. Yes. And, you know, that's huge. You, you think of how many parts in a car suddenly were 20% lighter, or what's that due to fuel economy, right? Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's interesting when you think about 3D printing, people say it's slow. And it is. It's getting way faster. Mm-hmm. But in, in so many manufacturing processes, it only has to be faster than the ship that currently brings the part from China, right? right. <laughs> it has to outrun the ship and right. you know, get the part that's cheaper, lighter, faster, stronger, and you don't have inventory. There's no carrying cost. So it's fascinating to think about how this will eventually disrupt manufacturing, particularly as it moves into high velocity and magnesium alloy and steel parts. It's uh, Henry Ford would love this. (laughs) Oh, yes, absolutely. Yeah. And if I remember right, this, I think, replaced eight different parts all in one part. Yeah, that's right. Didn't have to be sub suppliers, sub assemblers, didn't have to put it together. So you think about how drastically that that changes the supply chain. I don't need the customs broker, the truck, the ship, the sub assemblers, the warehouse. It's all gone. Wouldn't you rather be the disruptor? As I say in the book, disruption and innovation are two sides of the same coin. The mm-hmm. only reason you call it disruption is because you didn't do it. Right. If you did, it would be an innovation, but you didn't. Right. So it's right. a bloody disruption. On the Dragon capsule from SpaceX, I think they 3D print the Super Draco engines, the hypergolic engines that they use for descent of the capsule. Mm-hmm. Yeah, he's just pushing that envelope entirely, printing rocket engines. I mean, how cool is that, you know? Yeah, um, actually, there are people doing that. They're they're getting very large, and people are printing houses, you know, I mean, very low cost houses. Yeah, um, and, and, and using and, concrete printers. Yes. Yeah, and for me, the the question when somebody's sitting there saying, "Is this going to affect me?" If you look at the computability of the environment, or can I make it computable? Because if I can compute what I need to have laid down, and then I can control the materials into that computed space, then done. Right, I can three D print it. Mm-hmm. They, I want to turn to a couple of things. You mentioned drones and robots in your book, which I thought were fantastic the way you talked about them. And you talked a little bit about them, but just for fun, I wanted to involve our audience. You were talking about the first robot that you saw. So I'd like to go to a poll now. What is the first robot that you see? Robbie the robot from Forbidden Planet, which is the first one you saw. Terry Gort, which is the first one I saw from the day the earth stood still. Robot from Lost in Space. R2-D2 and C-3PO from Star Wars or the Roomba in your house? If folks could say which robot they saw first, I'd just be curious. Get an idea of the, dem- of the demographics of our audience here. All right. Why don't you guys go ahead and, and answer that. And then, Terry, say a little bit about how you think about the implications for robots and drones. Well, I think drone is a flying robot. I, I think what's fascinating is it, is you add artificial intelligence to them. You know, people are using drones in fascinating ways. Ways, I mean, whether it's firefighting or fertilizer that we talked about. A friend of mine lives in Chevy Chase, Maryland, and he called up his grocery store during COVID and said, do you deliver? And they said, yeah, just look for the drone outside your door. And it was a drone that looked like a radio flyer wagon. They were illegal before COVID. And during COVID, he just did it. 
And the city wow. said, yeah, okay, I guess it makes sense. So sometimes crises bring things forward, but certainly mm-hmm. you're seeing tremendous amounts of them in factories. I was at a cow barn in Iceland on a tour. And the guy said, you want to see a cow barn? I said, no, I've seen lots of cow barns. And he said, no, come in here. There are no people here. And the cows walked in and they were greeted, milked by a robot, fed a snack and went up back out in the field. They're producing more milk and they can't get people to milk cows in Iceland or most other places. Nobody wants that job anymore. You know, so whether it's that or a first responder or a concierge in hotels, hotels during COVID have, have put these robots in for room service. They're not going away. You know, we don't go backwards a lot once we put technology in. So, you know, mm-hmm. I was at Travelocity in 9-11 and, and, you know, testified on the creation of the TSA. Here we are 20 years later. Thank God we haven't had another incident, but we're not taking the TSA out. Right. So so mm-hmm. some of these new technologies, particularly contactless robotics, they're not they're not going away. And and drone delivery, UPS is delivering goods into retirement homes using drones. Got approved during mm-hmm. COVID because people don't want to go there and they don't want people there. So now they're getting approved. You know, they're parachuting in blood, all kinds of things. So a crisis can help. And as you know, mm-hmm. digital transformation slowed during COVID. It actually accelerated. Tremendous. So people aren't doing it. They're just going to get left behind by these technologies. Yeah, it's interesting, you know, and and I know there's a lot of a lot of human concern and and politics and tragedy and so forth and 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 need in things like coal mining, but yeah, I just can't see a future where the majority of anything that goes underground is not is is a robot, you know, for whether it's oil. Or yeah, coal. Well, absolutely true. And, and one of these companies just found out they went they got referred to put electric machines underground rather than diesel. And they're more expensive to buy, mm-hmm. but they found, you know, over time they're cheaper to because of the cost of fuel, but they didn't think about the fact they have no exhaust underground now. So suddenly right. they don't have to have all these fans. They don't have to put all these tunnels. Nobody has to wear masks. So you look at these unintended benefits. Uh, yeah. I mean, sure. there, there's just an article in the paper this morning about North Dakota where they have a large mine and the coal plant is being shut down and they're trying to ban wind turbines to keep the coal mine open. Why aren't they doing retraining? Because maybe maybe it'll work for a year or two. 85%, almost 90% of the decline in coal from 1920 to just before Obama's, quote, war on coal was mm-hmm. automation. It was all automation. And that's what's killing it. And it, it's not, we don't want, it's just, hey, we're going to automate that. And that's happening in so many industries. So it's it's tragic that the U.S. spends less on retraining than any other developed country or most any other. And, you know, I hope this administration reinforces that, changes that, because there's such a dislocation coming. We have to retrain workers. It's not their fault, but we're smart enough now to help them. In the old days, it was, well, you better leave the farm and walk to the city and get a job at the factory, right? But you don't have to be trained for that. If you don't know math today, you can't work in a modern factory. I'm on the board of a company called Kinsey Academy where we retrain workers to be coders. They come in making 20000 they leave making fifty, yeah. And it revolutionizes their lives. And it's awesome because the business model is different. It's a post-pay model. So what happens is they pay a percentage of their salary for three years after they graduate. They don't pay anything while they're in class. And we take the risk uh, mm-hmm. and lay off the post-pay as a mortgage, really. Mm-hmm. So it's not huge in college debt. And they're making so much more money, you know, that if they don't get all their 50000 the first three years, they're, they're happy anyway because they they were flipping burgers before. That's a new model. And we have to do lots of that. Yeah, fascinating. What a great idea. You know, it's kind of like Bowie bonds for the individual. Well, we have the results of our thing, and by far – by a factor almost of 10, R2-D2 as the first robot. Two people saw Robbie. Nobody knew who Gort was. And then one person first saw a Roomba and uh, three had robot. So that's their poll. So, yeah, I think the, the implications of that are are so, so phenomenal. Terry, I know we've got about eight minutes left. and I need to save a couple minutes to do some rap and tell the rest of the story. The idea of disruption, you know, it's easy. I'm reminded when people talk, when people like me talk about disruption, there's an old joke about major surgery and minor surgery. Major surgery happens to me, minor surgery happens to you. 
And disruption is kind of like that. Guys like you and I come into these big corporations, people sitting on top of them. And it's like, hey, you know, disrupt yourself. It's minor surgery. When you're with senior executives, and I know you are, of these large, complex organizations, and you're giving them the lowdown, you know, person to person, how do you talk to them about what it really takes and how they should think about the problem? I think the, the most important change that has to happen in large, successful industrial organizations is to reinvigorate a discipline of taking risk, to allow risk and failure to happen. And risk gets driven out businesses because they have to make the quarter, because it's not PC, and mm-hmm. they have to learn to kill projects, not people. And that happened in America. I mean, we, we had a lot of experimentation. Bob Crandall allowed IT to experiment a lot of things because he made so much money when he was Sabre. He said, let's, let's go try to do that again. And we did it again with Travelocity, and we had some big failures too. But you have to do that because Edison said, I never failed. I just found a thousand light bulbs that didn't work. It takes a long time. So creating that environment where you kill projects and not people then allows people to say, I'm going to go try that. And, you know, you know, that Harvard study that says 10 percent of radical ideas create 70 percent of future revenue. I mean, look at the Swiffer mop. Mm-hmm. The Swiffer mop practice, it's a diaper on a stick. It's a ridiculous idea, but they made cleaning chemicals, they make diapers. It's a billion-dollar business. Pretty yeah. radical idea. So I think that's key. And I think changing how you make decisions. I have a, a video in my speech and a, I think a, a drawing in the book about the pinball machine of corporate decisions. Yes. And, you know, you launch a new idea out there and marketing says no, and then IT says no. And if you get through them, then it's manufacturing says no and service says no. And then if you get down to the bottom of the pinball machine where there's two flippers, you know, those are finance and legal. And they always say no. (laughs) And, you know, the the idea, if you want to compete with a startup, everybody's job has to say, how do we get this new idea over the finish line? Not how do we kill it and go back to doing email? And and that has to come from the top. And it's interesting. Mm -hmm. If you talk to executives during COVID and talk to a bunch of, let's say, vice presidential level people in a large bank, and they say, we're just doing stuff. We're not asking the senior VPs. We're just getting it done because we have to do it. Uh, I, I think it was Best Buy had an 18-month plan to go to curbside delivery before COVID. They yes. did it in three days. And the boss won't forget that, right? Right. They did it in three days. That's that's the new time frame. Just, just get it done. And if you're going to compete against those thousands of startups that are nibbling at your ankles, mm-hmm. you, you have to take risks. You have to understand most of them will fail. We all know 75% of startups don't make it. And mm-hmm. you have to move quickly and make decisions quickly. Don't, don't play pinball. It's harder in a corporation because you have to run the marathon in the sprint. So you yeah. can't stop making waves, but, yep. but you have to have the sprint as well. And that may take separate divisions, travelocity, you know, cut ourselves off from a lot of corporate services and we're allowed mm-hmm. to be free. And then when the thing grows up, you say, okay, well, we're going to spin it out. We're going to make a new division. We're going to sell it, whatever we're going to do. But if you don't keep it in the greenhouse when it's little, Mm -hmm. it'll be surrounded by white cells and killed by by all the forces in the corporation. You know, it's Godzilla didn't kill King Kong. King Kong was killed by those little biplanes that look like mosquitoes. Those are the people that kill you. It's probably not your biggest competitor today. Mm -hmm. It's somebody coming out nowhere. So you you have to go to Silicon Valley and see what's happening. You have to use companies like John's that connect you to startups and to new ideas. But then you have to listen to them and act on them and, and try them. And they're not all going to work. But that's the only way, you know, 100-year-old companies, and there are a few, you know, IBM just reinvented itself again, took another huge bet. Don't know if it'll work, but I've you know been around long enough to see them reinvent, reinvent themselves Three or four times. Look at look at GM, finally making a bet on like all in on electric electric cars. Huge yes. bet, very difficult change, wrenching. Don't know if they'll make it, but they've you know Tesla finally got so big, they had to they had to do it. Yeah, and, and what a bold thing was it? Uh, no no carbon, no accidents, and no congestion. Right, the three big right. Names. From Mary in twenty thirty, amazing, yeah, Mary Barra, just huge yeah. change. Or you, you look at people like the power company in Vermont; they're selling Tesla batteries to people. They say, "Hey, 
you know, we, we get the power when we want it. You get it when you're offline. Well, mm-hmm. no other power. Very few power companies are doing that. And they're they're putting in solar and very remote houses because they don't want to try to keep the power line up during the storm. So they said, you should be on solar. Well, we'll sell it to you. They're not fighting solar. They're adopting it. Absolutely. That's a different end. Terry, I really want to thank you. And that's a great setup for what you and I were talking about. There's a part of this podcast we do called The Rest of the Story, like Paul Harvey used to do. The rest of the story is about Epcot, the experimental prototype community of tomorrow. Disney actually didn't intend it to be Walt Disney, didn't intend it to be a permanent World's Fair. He wanted it to be a prototype community of tomorrow and was a living city. And he passed away and the board chickened out. It was headed up by Roy Disney. And they said, no, we're not doing that whole new city thing. We're going to do a permanent World's Fair. You said, the question to ask yourself is, would your company today fund the thing that founded your company? Would FedEx today found Fred Smith doing FedEx? Would Disney today fund Walt Disney doing Epcot? And the answer is probably no. Every single company was founded by a risk taker and risk gets driven out. The risk Ford failed twice, went bankrupt before he got to the Model T. And even he didn't want to take the risk on the Model A. It took his son and a whole bunch of other people to beat him over the head to move to the Model A, and they were losing market share. So it's very hard to take those risks again once it's working, but you have to. And that's a great note to end on. Thank you, Terry. That's fantastic. Terry, I can't thank you enough. As always, it's such a delight to be with you, and and I learned so much, and I think we all do, and, and glad that you're still at it, my friend, and disrupting the world around us. So thank you. I can't thank you enough for being part of this. That's it for this episode. For more information and advice on how to become a growth innovator in your own organization, visit us at manifold.group. And if you enjoyed this episode, we would love a review on iTunes, Spotify, or whichever platform you use. Thanks as always for listening. We will see you next time. 